Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, October 12th, 1992, the first three-way TV presidential debate in history took place featuring George H.W. Bush, the Republican incumbent, Bill Clinton, the upstart Democrat, who would go on to win, of course, and independent, super, super upstart, Ross Perot. Uh, Perot, as he often did, kind of stole the show that night, even though he was really a last-minute addition, and there were lots of questions right up until the last moments about whether he would even run or even participate in the debate. So here to discuss that debate, a little bit on Perot's insurgency, and maybe we will get to that ever-present question or myth, really, of whether Perot actually cost Bush that election and paved the path for Clinton. Here, as always, Nicole Hammer of Columbia. Hello, Jody. Sorry, what did I, what did I screw up? What did I say? <laughs> hello, Nikki. You normally, you normally you say, introduce hello, both of us. Yeah, you, you do both of them. Oh my God, what is wrong with you? <laughs> That's how you do the outro. You say, yeah. you say Nikki and then it's only, it's only like 600 episodes in. <laughs> Notice how part. we all pause like, um, that's yeah, right. Yeah, and listeners are probably like <laughs> crashing their car into a right. tree. Or, like, uh, Everything's different. Let me try. Yeah, who moved my cheese? Is that the, uh, let me try that again. Here, as always, are Nicole Hammer of Columbia and Kelly Carter Jackson of Wellesley. Hello there. Hello, Jody. Hey there. <laughs> all right. Um, so, yeah, Nikki, let's start with that. Um Perot's like inclusion here, right? You right the story of this election feels like Perot is such a deep part of it. Like no one can imagine the nineteen ninety two election without Ross Perot. But it was a big open question as to whether he would even be part of the story, right? Yeah, I mean he was a pretty unusual independent candidate because he didn't really have a party. He was just an independent candidate and he had launched his campaign on the Larry King show. And mm-hmm. he said that, you know, if you can, if my supporters out there can get me on all 50 states ballots, then I'm going to run. And they do that. And so he's technically like in the race and he's going around and he's giving speeches and he's going on television and he's leading in polls against mm-hmm. both Bush and Clinton. So he is this force to be reckoned with. And, you know, he's some of the air is going out of the balloon by July. But when Bill Clinton accepts the nomination for the Democrats, Ross Perot just pops up and he's like, OK, well, that seems fine. So I'm not going to run. I'm, I'm out. And he just leaves the race. And then 
August happens, September happens, and then at the start of October, he pops back up again. He's like, actually, I don't feel like the topics that I feel are important are being talked about in the way I want to talk about them. So guess who's back? And then he's back in the race because he'd always been on the ballot, right? So it was just about him deciding whether to be fully present or not. <laughs> right. And that and I mean that look, that media teasing mm-hmm. and knowing you can string people along and then jumping in only when, you know, the odds are starting to move more in your favor and seeing that the election plays out and there may be a lane for you. I mean, obviously there's so yeah. many Trump parallels there. There's tons of Trump and Perot parallels. But you know, the media bought it. I mean, you go back and read um, Time magazine had a huge cover story that was called Waiting for Perot. It's mm. pretty clever uh, title there. And I actually it's went pretty and, good. I, I went <laughs> Research, by the way, like everyone used waiting for Perot. Um, the, the waiting, uh, like the Tampa Bay Times used, the Washington Post used, there's like 15 different articles that use waiting for Perot. When you have a good pun, I guess you go, you go for right. it. Um, but yes, he got had it both ways. He got to be in the race and also not in the race at the same time until this moment where then, yes, he's in the race and he shows up on the debate stage. Schrodinger's candidate. And this is the first time where... America has to really take him seriously. You know, he has to answer foreign policy questions and domestic agenda questions and, you know, like offer up solutions that are typical in debates and banter back and forth with people that have had political experience. And he doesn't have any of that. He just has money and like quippy one liners. Well, so that that's that's something I'm I'm curious about as we think about Ross Perot because the other thing he's famous for is this sort of wonky side, right? He would get these like half <laughs> mm-hmm. hour he would like take out these half hour infomercials with like all these charts, right? And talk about all this, you know. But the stuff that he's also remembered for and especially at this debate are these one liners, as you were saying, mm-hmm. Kelly. So I'm curious, you know, Nikki, like, you know, I mean, this is where the Trump mm-hmm. comparisons fall apart because Trump doesn't have that wonky side. He only has the one liners, but Perot had both. <laughs> Yeah, he he did have them both. And he was very savvy about using television. And, you know, who knows why it worked. But in a pre 538 time, when people like wanted to dig into the data, there he was and people watched it like tens of millions of people would tune in to these, these infomercials that he was putting on. So there was something about that combination of wonkiness and folksiness and just the improbability of somebody like Perot, who is this tiny man with these giant ears and this high squeaky voice, that he was the person that was like capturing the American's imagination. Yeah, It all seemed so improbable. But as mm. more and more people got on board and as he was leading in the polls, people were looking around and being like, OK, well, maybe I should start taking him seriously. Mm-hmm. I think people are always sort of persuaded or at least maybe um i don't know influenced by someone who is speaking out their their grievances or sort of saying like both people Mm -hmm. are messed up both people are corrupt both you know like saying pointing out the problems not necessarily offering up solutions but at least putting their finger on people's frustrations politically with feeling like both parties were inept in in terms of getting things done, I think he had a lot of success. And a lot of politicians have success by pointing out, you know, that the establishment poses no real solution or has no real solution or has had opportunities and and missed those opportunities. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think that this Trump comparison is actually really useful in that sense, because it's that anti-establishment thing. Ross Perot is a billionaire a couple of different times over um, and pretty successful for building his own computer company. Um, And he is so 
braggadocious and so mm. narcissistic. I mean, here's somebody who believes because he's a billionaire, he can run the country. But he also like he wanted to independently go to Vietnam and rescue the POWs like a much smaller version of Rambo. And he he just had this sense that because he had the money, mm-hmm. he should be able to impose his solutions and you know americans respond very strongly to a person in business with a lot of money running for president oh yeah Yeah. we think that people who have money have solutions they must have gotten it somehow they know right tell us your ways and and this this debate though you know he does from a pure kind of debate performance he really does a remarkable job i mean he you know completely destabilizes bush and clinton uh, on stage he has one of his most famous lines is that is a sort of response to that well you don't have any experience and he basically says like so you're telling me i haven't like bankrupted this country and you know done a bunch of awful things like yes i don't have a, i don't have insider experience that's the whole point point. and then he also has that very famous line about the giant sucking sound right when he's making an anti-free trade argument very resonant of donald trump as well mm-hmm. but he says you know if George H.W. Bush's economic policies continue, you're going to hear a giant sucking sound of jobs being sucked mm. away from the U.S. into Mexico. I mean, talk about the mm. seeds of what we what came to, to sprout in 2016. Um, but I think Perot's role in that election also brings out a couple other interesting themes that maybe we'd forgotten about, which is, yes, like, George H.W. Bush was incredibly unpopular, floundering, sort of like personality-wise, just like really prone to having someone like Ross Perot destabilize him. But I also think it's it's an interesting reminder that Bill Clinton, people weren't really sure about him either. And we sort of write that story backwards of like, oh, he was this charming kid. He was this new, we've talked about this on this show, you know, he was this charming, young, energetic, yeah. baby boomer president who was like capturing this new American fervor. Um and like going jogging and so forth. Um, But I don't think Perot sees this lane unless he also sees that people are a little wary of Clinton too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, voters don't trust Clinton. Um, he's not he's not particularly popular in that sense. And they're worried about all of the baggage he's bringing with him. And, it, you know, even though he presents himself as a new Democrat, they had not voted for a Democratic president for a long time. And they mm-hmm. still had a little bit of that that Carter reluctance or that reluctance from the Carter era. So there was a lane. Um, and particularly, I think the NAFTA policy is exactly why there was a lane, because you know, when the two parties agree on an issue and nobody is voicing the other component of it, there is an opening for a third party mm-hmm. or an independent to say, hey, they agree on a bad thing. Mm. No one is speaking for you. Barbara Bush gets on the stage with a red ribbon for AIDS, for, for victims of AIDS. That's shocking mm-hmm. to me. So it's part of an evolution that's happening in the party, right? Because that's the same. It's 1992. You have... Pat Buchanan, who is a pretty Mm -hmm. anti-gay figure. But you also had Mary Fisher, who Mm. was at the 1992 convention talking about her experience. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Barbara Bush is kind of tying into that softer side of the Republican Mm. Party. Got it. We should mention the debate was in St. Louis. Um, Any other memories from that night? It's not like... I mean, Perot, I think, is the star. But but I think Clinton also starts to find his sea legs as well, right, Nikki? Right, because Clinton makes sure that he saves at least some of his fire for George Bush. And George Bush was really struggling because he was trying to figure out how to balance the extremer side of his party. Pat Buchanan, of course, had been a candidate in 92. The convention was a pretty dark 
gay bashing, feminist bashing um, moment. And Clinton uses that against Bush. He points out that Senator Prescott Bush um, had been out there attacking Joe McCarthy, um, even when that was politically costly for him back in the 1950s, and using Bush's own history against him, Mm. um, saying that he's not as strong as his father was um, when it came up to standing against the, the bad and dangerous elements in his own party. It was a pretty effective line. It was um, it was one of those that they were repeating all all the next day. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think it's also interesting too when um, uh, Senator Joe Biden mm-hmm. <laughs> remarking on the election says, "You see, this is a two man race: Governor Clinton and Ross Perot." Right, which became the conventional wisdom, which is a kind of amazing thing to say when you have an incumbent president <laughs> also running for reelection. But that I think starts to get at I think one of the big questions around this election and one of the big I would argue myths about this election which is you know that Ross Perot was a spoiler who Mm. took votes from George H.W. Bush and if it weren't for Ross Perot George H.W. Bush would have won so the facts Mm. are that Perot ends up getting 19% of the vote which is the highest share since Teddy Roosevelt in 1912 um you talk to anyone, I think, to this day in the Bush campaign, and they'll say, oh, it was Ross Perot. He sunk us. But the fact of the matter is, A, Bush's approval rating was 29%. <laughs> I mean, it was not, he was not popular. And I think that's really he important to remember. He was not a shoe Right. And also, exit polls, you know, which I think have their usefulness, did show that voters generally would have split evenly between the, mm-hmm. between the two. Now, you know, and so I think the, I, there was actually a whole documentary that 538 did about this, but, you know, that, that basically said exploded this myth. And by, if you look at the data and the polling, and I, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, that said, I also think just from a narrative perspective, when you have these moments like on this debate stage of a two on one against the sitting president, um, you know, I think that it's that it's silly to then go all the way the other direction and say, well, Perot was basically a non-factor. Um, he clearly hurt Bush and how you know helped wound an already very wounded candidate. Right. If you're looking just at the polls, um, it it does seem pretty clear that it was a split because when Perot drops out of the race in July, yep. most of that accrues to Bill Clinton. He comes out of that convention with like a 27 point lead or something like that. And when Perot comes back into the race, it really eats away at that. Um, so I think that's right. I mean. It, Bush was in a terrible place when he ran for president, and Perot reinforces, doesn't necessarily take away all of his voters, but reinforces that Bush has a great deal of opposition, and there are other options out there. Which is, I think, also interesting because, you know, what I remember most about Ross Perot was like the SNL spoofs oh, yeah. of him that mm-hmm. Dana Carey did that were hilarious. But it also just goes to show that even sort of the humor and the characterization of him couldn't really dismantle or didn't take away votes when people went um, into the ballot booth. So it's it's interesting how the things that we might dismiss about a political candidate are sometimes the very things that push people yeah. toward that candidate. Yes. Well, and yeah, and I think another reminder that at some level, I think it's just like fame is fame and attention is attention. Mm -hmm. And if you're getting parodied, it means that people are at least paying attention to you and sort of like pulling out parts of your personality um, and finding some sort of level of connection with it. So absolutely. Um, so final thing, as we wrap up, we you, you did mention, Nikki, that he is a truly independent candidate at this point in 1992. He doesn't have a party. But then 
Perot obviously stays on the scene for a long time. He forms the Reform Party, mm-hmm. which I will go on to mention that Donald Trump flirted with running for president on the Reform Party ticket, uh, what, in 2000? Uh, in 2000. Yeah, yeah, so there you go. But but he ends up a man with a party uh, eventually. It's the repository for all presidential candidates who have no political experience. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> There you go. Um, All right. That brings us to the end of the episode. Nicole Hemmer, thanks to you. Thanks, Jody. And Kelly Carter-Jackson, thanks to you. My pleasure. Whose fault is that? Not the Democrats, not the Republicans. Somewhere out there, there's an extraterrestrial that's doing this to us, I guess. And everybody says they take responsibility. Somebody somewhere has to take responsibility for this. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is, our democracy is broken. We can all feel it, and there's data to back it up, too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact, though? Money! You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement, too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia.